You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome, everyone, to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today, we're talking to pro skier Cody Townsend, who lives in Tahoe City. Cody grew up in Santa Cruz in a football family, but he says he knew as a young child that he wanted to be a pro skier, and he has fully dedicated himself to that improbable path uh, ever since then. And Cody's a free skier, which basically means he travels around the world and puts down lines in the most amazing places and sends cliffs and just has a ton of fun making his passion his career. Uh, Cody really made an impact in 2014 with this short clip of him charging through this super steep crack on the side of a mountain in Alaska. It was this, it was beautiful and terrifying, and it thrust Cody into the spotlight a bit. He won a bunch of awards for the film, and it really vaulted him into the upper echelon of pro skiing, and that's where he is today. And the thing that's great about talking to Cody is he's very honest and he's very thoughtful about all of the challenges that he's gone through to make a career out of skiing. Um, not just the, the physical toll of hucking his body off a 70 foot cliff, but the mental and emotional grind of being a self-made brand. Uh, he really brings a refreshing self-awareness to it all. Now everyone's like, how are you going to wow us? How are you going to continue to be, who you showed us in this one viral clip. And for me, it was like kind of a weird, a weird moment. Um, took a lot of introspection to kind of get through it. Cody is currently working on a huge project to ski the 50 most iconic lines in North America. He started a month or so ago and he is releasing videos of each trip uh, that go deep into the, the culture and the background of each of the places that he's skiing. Uh, he calls it the 50 Project, and we talk about that, and we talk about so much more on the podcast. I really hope you guys enjoy it. We'll get into my conversation with Cody after this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my chat with pro skier Cody Townsend. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Cody. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. I mean, I know you're super busy doing this 50 project, um, and so it's awesome to be able to catch you kind of in the midst of it while you're getting rolling. Yeah, totally. It worked out timing-wise well, because I'm home for like two days before I'm back <laughs> on the next adventure, and you came up here to Tahoe and made it happen, so thank you. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to learn more about the 50 project and what you're up to, but I wanted to start by asking you about the time in your career when you kind of, I felt like emerged on, at least on my radar. And that was in 2014, uh, with the, the clip from days of my youth. 
when you're skiing that crazy Alaskan Kuyar and you, and so that, that segment comes out, it's like a minute and a half or two minutes or something takes off on the web. Like everybody sees it. Um, you end up winning a bunch of powder awards for it. And so what, what was that? Was that kind of a turning point for you in your career or? I would say it was. And as I like to call it, I said, it's like the 10 year overnight success story (laughs) because I'd been skiing professionally for quite a long time up into that point and like grinding it out on the, in the contest world, shooting photos and being in films and stuff like that. And I'd had four segments prior to that, but it was pretty like insular like I, I guess my popularity was insular within the small um uh sphere of skiing and whatnot and then when that clip went viral and won all the awards yeah it definitely felt like it took me to an upper another tier which then affected me in ways i didn't really know or could have predicted um so it was uh yeah i, I things have changed since then that's for sure yeah how did that affect you like ways that you that you couldn't have predicted what happened well, I mean, my whole life has been based around trying to become a professional skier. It was like the thing I grew up wanting to do. It was like, I don't know, it was, I knew what I wanted to do when I was six years old. Um, I just wanted to be a skier. I didn't know exactly how to do it or what to do, but I was like, I want to be a skier. So as I'm going through this whole um, this whole way through a professional ski career, and I had these little goals, like I want to be in a matchstick productions film and then when I started to do that and then I was what I felt like was there I was kind of like all right like I'm this is great like I'm a pro (laughs) skier I get to ski for a living um I, I I love this and like I was married to a pro skier I'm like this is great and then you know that kind of point when it turned all of a sudden it was like well you're on the upper tier of skiers and this whole nother echelon where you're recognized outside of skiing um and it wasn't what i ever thought could happen in skiing because i always just cared about like peer respect and then all of a sudden you're having like espn call and cnn call and you're like whoa 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 (laughs) like i'm just a skier man like yeah so um it was really interesting because i all of a sudden realized like it did have this mental toll on me um mainly the question is like what are you going to do next Mm -hmm. was always coming up and i'm like I don't know, like I've been working like five years to find that line. That was like my dream line at that moment. I'm like, I can't just come up with that overnight and like, okay, here's my new dream line. Yeah. And then at the same time, you know, we've been going through a rough phase in skiing where lost a lot of friends to the mountains. And, you know, I saw this progression of the sport going so fast and so hard and people not necessarily dying because of that, but, you know, it's part of it. And then I saw what I did, which was such a deeply personal thing, and it was like my own vision. And then when it went so wide, and I was like, that's the new bar, that's the high, the best line ever. And I was like, whoa, no, 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 no. Like, we can't, don't set a bar then, and you gotta top that, because that's not what I want to happen with this sport. That's not what I want to happen with myself and my friends. So it all of a sudden set me up really weird. It was like, yeah, what am I going to do next? And I don't have necessarily a next dream. My whole dream was just be a pro skier. Now everyone's like, how are you going to wow us? How are you going to continue to be who you showed us in this one viral clip? And for me, it was like kind of a weird, a weird moment. Um, Took a lot of introspection to kind of get through it. Huh. Did you feel like that had any impact on your friends or other pro skiers too like you got to top this in some way um 
I almost would have guessed it might have, but I don't think it has because I haven't seen people trying to go for like gnarly tight coulars and straight line stuff like that. Like that's just the way it is. And I think that's just a reflection of like skiers and professional skiers are just ski bums at heart. They just get paid <laughs> to do it and yeah. then they love skiing. And so like you're driv- they're driven by what they want to do in skiing, not by what the media is out, what is doing well. They're very just like, I ski because I love it and I'm going to jump big cliffs and do backflips because that's what I love or ski pillows because that's what I love, you know, whatever it is. So um, I don't think it really has had an effect on the rest of the people just because they're just still doing their thing. Yeah, but there is that sense in skiing, I feel like in particular of, it's also, it's it reminds me of big wave surfing a little bit, like, this sense of one-upmanship, you know? Um, The next person has to do the coolest, gnarliest, craziest thing. Yeah. Um, There is that for sure. But the one thing we have with skiing that's really beneficial is we don't have numbers really attached with it. Like in surfing, it's like, I surfed a 67-foot wave. And like, who's going to do the 70-foot wave? So these numbers and these things attached with it. Um, the same goes for climbing, the same goes for yeah. like, mountaineering in certain ways. So when you start getting numbers and facts in there, then people want to one-up it. With skiing, it's just kind of like freeride skiing. It's, it's, it's free. There's no real way to judge it other than that looks really cool. Yeah, it was rad. Or yeah. that was rad, <laughs> yeah. That's the best way to judge a sport. It was like, that was rad. That's like the number one thing. So what you can do to show people that was rad can be something that's obviously crazy like the crack or you can do stuff like i don't know i watched this uh, segment from carl fosfett last year and jumping off like 10 foot cliffs and doing like the craziest butters and spins and like so styly and it was like not risky like mine was and it was i thought equally as rad as mine so that's the one thing we get away with in skiing is not having to progress going bigger doing riskier stuff isn't necessarily the way of progression in the sport yeah it's interesting before i came to do this podcast i started asking friends of mine who mm-hmm. are hardcore skiers like what would you want to know from cody townsend basically mm-hmm. and um you know the thing that came up from everybody i asked was like basically what's it like to be a pro but more like how do you make it work Mm -hmm. yeah i mean being a professional skier obviously the basic prerequisite is you got to be good at skiing like it's kind of (laughs) although that (laughs) that is changing these days social media has changed that a lot you don't necessarily have to be the best skier anymore yeah we'll get we'll talk yeah it used to be you'd have to be the best but these days to me like what i see with what sets how do you make a business out of it is you got to treat yourself like a business. You got to, you got to speak the language of business to your sponsors. Um, you have to deliver value to sponsors who are trying to sell gear, whether that value comes in creating unique products that they hadn't thought of or marketing those products. Um, you just have to do something for them. Um, or it's just like, hey, you're a really cool guy. It fits our brand image. Uh-huh. Just we want to associate with you. So there's, I mean, there's a ton of different ways about it. But ultimately, like, you do have to treat it like a business. And you do have to treat yourself like a, it's its own kind of entity and make a make business out of it. It's, uh, it's a tricky game. It's taken me a long time to figure out. Yeah. 
what what do you think is the trickiest part or the hardest part for you that you've had to go through? Is it like, you know, thinking about how hard to push it or sort of how much is too much or? Yeah. No, so on the skiing side of things, I've never, when I'm in the mountains, the business side of it, the sponsor side of it has never come into my mind. Like it's honestly, when I'm dropping in on a line, I'm nev- I've never once in line and thought like, this is going to make my segment rad, which then my contract's almost up. You know, I got to, I got to really show them what I'm capable of. Okay. Those desires always are just strictly internal. They like, they come through the summer being like, man, if I could do a double backflip off like this perfect cliff. And then you spend the whole winter looking for that. And then you do it. It has nothing to do with the business side of it. And I find that skiers in general, the skiing part of it, never interferes with the business part of it. Um, there's a handful of people that it might, but from my perspective, it never has. It's more the, actually, the hardest part of it is doing the work, like the computer work, the social media, <laughs> the content yeah. generation. There's no school that teaches you how to be a professional athlete, what delivers value to a company you work with. So it, it's a very vague thing there's i don't think anyone does it the same and it kind of takes you figuring it out for yourself um i was lucky enough early on to get a little bit of coaching from some mentors mainly i just would take them out to dinner and ask them like what do i do how do how much what should i get paid like should i get paid one thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars like i it's so vague to me i don't know what's like valuable and um so i just you know picked people's brains and you know a lot of people are doing that with me nowadays and i'm fully happy to help teach them because it's it's hard it's a hard one to figure out seems like a tough racket all the way around yeah it is tough i mean it's it's unfortunate because there's some really really good skiers out there that just don't have the business sense and they're not gonna make it as far they're like top-notch skiers professional skiers but because they don't have like that back-end business sense it'll never it'll never quite work it out to be maybe paid what they deserve um but ultimately you're, you're like well this is a business like we are we're not just like gallivanting free skiers that just get to do whatever i want and then people hand me money when i want it like it's not that's not reality um i wish that was reality but it's not yeah have you ever had second thoughts about it about being a pro skier? Yeah. No. About, about trying to make it? No, no. never? No. I mean, that's the only thing I wanted to do. Like like I said, when I was like six years old and watching Scott Schmidt and watching the Olympics and stuff like that, I was just like, I want to be a skier. And yeah. I was skiing and I was obsessed with it, even though I grew up in Santa Cruz at the beach. And that was everything I wanted to do. I, I mean, I went to high school, got good grades, graduated, went to college, got good grades, graduated. Yeah. And I'd still never forget sitting down with my um, <clears throat> the department head, and he was like, hey, we'd like you to come back and do your master's here if you really want to. And he's like, well, what's your plans? I'm like, I'm going skiing, man. <laughs> like, I'm done with school. I'm finally getting to focus 100%. And now this is everything I've ever wanted. More day, these days I think about, I'm like, I can't believe this is actually working. Like, this is my career like i thought it'd be like a short little gig and then probably get a real job but <laughs> like this i'm 35 and still doing it <laughs> yeah um do you feel like you have to do you feel like you've hit a level where you feel comfortable enough to kind of keep it going you know enough you have enough experience where you can like 
make it a living. I mean, like you said, you're 35, you know, which is kind of an interesting point in life. It's like when people start thinking about, no, no, this is personal. You, yeah, yeah. you know, like buying homes, settling down, having kids, whatever, yeah, all that kind of stuff. For sure. Um, and so as you're kind of, you know, in this period of your life, like, are you thinking like, yeah, I can probably ride this out and actually make it like a retirement plan or whatever, or plant the seeds now to make it a retirement plan later? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I have been lucky enough to reach a point where I feel comfortable to keep going for quite a while with this, but not necessarily in the way of, like, I'm going to keep sending it and scheme the gnarliest lines ever. Moving more into that ambassador icon kind of role, which um, hopefully is more in your, like, mid-40s. I still have, like, feel a lot of years left to give on a part of the sport that... Um, I haven't started dabbling with until recently with this new project I'm doing. Um, but you know, like I don't, my body's changed to the point where I can't be sending it off 60 foot cliffs. I was going to ask you, I feel like you've done that longer than many. I've done it for a long time. (laughs) I I just know now it just hurts. I just, (laughs) I realized at one point it was actually in 2014. I was sitting on top of a cliff up in Alaska and it was like a 60, 65 foot cliff. And I remember having zero fear. I just looked at it. I was like, ski into the line, hit the cliff, land. And I was like, okay, whatever. And I remember telling the filmer what I'm going to do. They're like, oh, you're going to hit that one? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm like, it's probably just going to hurt, but whatever. (laughs) It'll be a shot. And I, like, did it. I didn't really get that psyched about it. It did hurt. (laughs) It felt like getting in, like, a minor car crash. But I (sighs) landed it, skied up, and that was that. And I just remember being like, okay, like, this is obviously not as fun as it used to be. And you're, if you're losing the fun side of it, then you're going to be losing the like passion to continue to get better and do and dream about what you want to do. And so um, this is a few years ago, I started to start thinking in different ways. So um, that's where I think the beauty of skiing is like, there's a million different ways you can do it. And um, that's why I'm kind of now starting on this new project, which is a lot different than what I've done before in the past. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you about social media also. Mm-hmm. I, I know you have some thoughts on this and you just have, uh, I think, a distinct social media personality for a pro athlete. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of athletes, what you get from their social media posts, what, you, what, what they, you know, they give to the world is like just sort of inspiration and stoke yeah. or more and more these days, like political and social commentary. For sure. Um, Obviously, there's, like, the promotional aspect of it. Um, and yours is is more, I think, sort of gives people a clear lens. Um, it's, like, a clear lens of how you view the world. Yeah. And part of that is being is, is maybe you being self-aware on social media. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering what you make of your own social media personality, if that's something you've had to kind of cultivate along with, you know, your your brand or or this business? Well, I would first say I have to cultivate doing it because I probably would not be on Instagram if it wasn't for my career. Mm -hmm. Um, I just find myself like wasting time on it. (laughs) I like, you know, I've taken social media breaks and just like literally don't turn on a phone for a week and it's like the best damn week ever. So that is something I cultivate when it comes to like the, the presence and the tone Um, I think there's a few things with that is like one, I grew up in a writing family. My mom's a journalist. She's an author. Um, My dad was an English teacher. Um, And so I read a lot and uh, wrote a ton. And then 
I just also have this inner desire to be a little different, I guess. And so when I see things of trending in certain ways on Instagram, I'm like, I'm going the opposite way. Uh-huh. Um, and to me, like one of the early in social media, I thought it was really cool at first because you're like, whoa, you're getting insight into people's lives. And then I've seen it go just more to more generic, generic brand, generic promotion. All totally. this. And I'm like, well, I want to kind of keep that going. Like whatever it is, like an insight into, into skiing, insight into what I do as a professional skier or an insight into the way I think about things. I'm like, I want to keep that like connection there because the only, the only good thing I think about social media is the connections you can make. Like I've made quite a lot of friends from social media that I hadn't met and was able to meet through it. So it's a, it's a kind of thing where like, I just try and think about being true to myself, being kind of like, give something of value to the audience as well and not just like slam them with uh, cliches and promotions. So yes, that is a part of it. And like I was saying, I have to cultivate doing it. Yeah. Um, but that's part of the thing I, I realized like three years ago, I was like, every one of my meetings with sponsors, they brought up social media. So there's something here. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm going to work hard at this. And I made a thing. I'm like, you're going to post every day. Just post every day. And I started doing that, and I started watching my accounts grow. I saw sponsors being happier. So they're like, okay, this is the business part of it. I would probably post maybe once a week or not be on Instagram if I didn't have to do it. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of the reality of the, the the business that we're in now. Yeah. And Instagram is the biggest one, yeah, like the, kind of your main. I think it's the one that, yeah, most people talk about. Right. My, actually, my favorite's Twitter by far. Um, I'm more of a news insights and reading kind of guy. So uh-huh. I, I like if I were to give up all social media, I mean, Facebook, I've pretty much almost given up on Facebook already. I think most people have, um, Insta and Instagram, I would get rid of that, but Twitter, I might stay on because I like, um, it's a good, it's almost like an RSS feed in a certain way, mm-hmm. go through news, go through people's insights, commentary. There's like, it's just like the written side of things a little bit more than just flipping through pictures. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I wanted to, to bring up one of your Instagram posts, um, that I think kind of encapsulates mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is so enjoyable about following you on Instagram. Um, and it's the one you'd probably expect. It's the, this like incredible pow shot from mm-hmm. probably a couple months ago. Um, and you know, you're like in powder up to your belly button yeah. or whatever. Um, and you, in the caption, you're like, this is the marketing turn. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and it was so funny. I just want to read it real quick. Yeah, yeah. Or do you? Go for, go for it. All right. You see, a vast majority of POW shots you see consist of gathering a lot of speed, potentially even packing out an in-run, to get as much speed as possible, straight lining down, and then trenching in for one turn in a preordained location in front of the camera. Then you stop. And if you're a hardworking pro, you hike back up and do it again, three feet to the left of your last track. Then you do it again. And again. Then you post said photos online and submit to magazines and bask in the glory. <laughs> so, like, why show that to people? I mean, yeah. or why why tell people that? I mean, why not? Like, I think it's a because it, it's a, it feels like a dirty secret of yeah, the industry. It's like breaking the fourth wall or something for sure. But that's I feel like what I try to do with a lot of things is I want to break down that fourth wall because ultimately I don't feel like I'm much special i don't feel like i'm more talented than a lot of people i've some of my best friends i grew up with i still think 
are better skiers than me. And so there's a certain thing where you're just like, I just want to show you like a little bit of what we do. And cause I find it comedic and I will do it. I've spent my entire day hiking a hundred foot lap and getting one run and just doing pow turns. Sometimes you don't have to do that. Sometimes you do have to do that. So I don't know when I posted that up, I was just thinking, I was like, Oh yeah, this is so comical. Like what we do for these powder shots and everyone like loves them, but you're like, Hey, this is like the real story behind it. And people laugh and they understand it, but it doesn't change their perception of like the sport or of what they do. They're still, still going to see another pow shot and be like, Whoa, that's a beautiful pow shot. It doesn't like ruin it. So, um, um, I mean, I'll continue to do that. So, yeah. yeah. No, I think it actually, that type of, of caption, that type of information enhances it. Yeah. You know, it gives you a perspective on it that you wouldn't otherwise see. And it also grounds it a little bit. I mean, one of the things about these personas and these images is they just look unbelievable and mm-hmm. incredible to the average person. It's like, man, how do they find that powder? How do they get the shot? How do they do the yeah. thing? You know? Um, well, I so think just it's... explaining it like that is like, yo, it's a job. Like I'm out here working. Yeah. Um, and it just puts it in perspective, I think for people. For sure. And that that's the one thing that I think a lot of pro skiers and pro athletes and a lot of sports have m- made mistakes by doing this but but they like try to be like you don't understand how hard we work you don't understand like this is you're putting your life on the line and we do so much stuff to like make it uh make this happen for you guys and like 99 percent of people will be like yeah i'd still trade my job for your job in a heartbeat so what i, I i've made it in my rule to never complain about the job ever mm-hmm. because it's Although it's hard at times, there's downsides to making the thing you love most in your career, in your life, your job. But ultimately, it's rad and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So when I do those kind of posts, I think it's just trying to be like, it's showing that like we're working to make these images without complaining about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, I guess I just like giving people insights into things like I like, I like the fact that people are like, oh, they learned something. Like, yeah. I guess that ultimately, if someone can learn something from one of my posts, then <laughs> then I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I like I struggle with putting captions that are just kind of generic. Like, I always want to make something of it because I'm like, I, I want to tell you the story behind it. No. Is there another uh, marketing shot type insider? you know, how the sausage is made yeah. component of Oof. filmmaking or, you know, photography um, or just the way these expeditions come together or anything yeah. that you can talk about? I mean, I think the number one thing is the thing that people don't realize is how little we actually ski um, mm. because we work so long to make one shot happen. So, you know, if we're backcountry skiers, we got to be shooting in POW and that takes weeks on end to figure out where it's going to be snowing, get there, sit there, wait for it to go clear. Um, during that time period, you're often doing like scouting or you're doing your business work of things. You're not just going like lapping the free re- the resort and just having a good time. But um, once we get out there, like you have to go further than everyone else so that you're by yourself, not with people around you. Um, so we get up earlier, go further. And then once you're out there, like you're scouting your lines, taking time, like, on a good day of filming, I'll ski six lines. And that's like a really good day. On um That sounds good. Yeah. Like but like 
six six runs that's it yeah. you know and it's short generally so it's like this kind of thing of like you stand around we go out there and you're standing around for an hour on top of your line or at the bottom of your line waiting to do 10 turns and jump a cliff and then you kind of move on to the next one and then you know you go hope for the next day so it's one of these things like well, seth morrison once said it and he's like the the more famous you get the less you ski and it is kind of mm. true. You end up doing a lot more other work to make it happen than you do um, the actual skiing part. I think it's a, like people just think we ski every day and just go lap. And uh, I wish that was the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because it seems like you might almost get out of practice or something. Yeah. Like, how do you warm up for the shot when you're in these remote places where, you know, if you ski a line, it ruins the photo or somebody else's line or like whatever. You don't. And that's what makes it really difficult. And there's, you know, I've tried to take lessons from other pro skiers who um, will take the first two months of the season to themselves and just go free ski and no filming, no nothing, no photos, just ski, because that's the only time you're actually going to get better. Cause when you're on camera, you're trying to do stuff that you know, you can do like, I, like an 80% chance that you're <laughs> going to land it. Um, because if you keep crashing, you're never going to get the footage or the shots to make, um, make a segment or make an interesting movie. So, um, when you're out there too, that's the other hard part is like, the light is the best in the first part of the day or the end oh, of the day. Yeah. So we're, you know, getting, like, if we're going snowmobile filming, we're on four, um, you know, get up at 4 a.m. We're on our snowmobiles by 4.45. We're driving out there. Sun pops up. Like, you get on your line and you just go send it. Um, it's, yeah, there's not much warm-up. I, ideally, we try to make warm-up laps, but it, like, I would say one out of every 10 days you get, like, a warm-up lap, so... Um, yeah, that's the hard part about it is like, uh, or what I would say what like some of the best athletes and the best pro skiers in the world are good at is just make the rising to that level at that moment. Um, the performing on command for sure. Yeah. It's just like any sort of competition of being like, we're at the Olympics mm. now go for it. And you know, in the backcountry world, you're looking down a line that hasn't been skied before. There's no tracks. Half the time you can't even see the line because it rolls over and blind and you're standing up top. You're like, I think it's to the left. (laughs) I got to figure out once I start making turns. Um, And so, uh, you know, it takes us a lot of time and skill and to me experience to get to those points. And I'm always impressed by the the best guys in the world because you'll see them look at stuff first lap and be like, I'm going to do a three and a seven off that. And you're like, what? And they do it. And you're like, these guys are like cats, man. They're, it's pretty cool to watch. Yeah. So one thing you said in there was, um, you know, when you're going out, you can't just sort of screw around and keep falling, yeah, keep yeah. crashing, whatever. But I, I feel like more and more the clips that come out, the segments, and then the actual films in, seem to include a lot more wipeouts, crashes, For blooper, sure. you know, stuff that would have been considered like bloopers yeah, yeah. a while ago. Well, it was actually back in the day, it used to always have a crash segment, and then it kind of faded away, and yeah. now they're kind of coming back. Yeah, again. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but no pro skier wants to be, like, highlighted throughout the crash reel. Just, you don't think so? No, no, you don't want to be, because it shows you're, one, you're loose, um, you're not necessarily have it together, and then, two, like, you're not that good or something like that. And, yeah. you know, that's the thing with professional athletes, especially on camera, is, like, in order to just get to that level, you have to have some sort of ego. 
it's just like a basic prerequisite. Um, most of the skiers I ski with are incredibly humble. You meet them and they're like, they're just like normal people. But <laughs> there's this little thing inside of them that, and whether it's just a belief that I can be really good, that I can be the best or do a thing that no one else has done before. That takes ego. And so when you come down to it, like a lot of pro skiers and pro athletes, they're egotistical it's, and not in a bad way. It's just, that's what happens. So if you featured in the crash reel, it looks, it's humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like there is maybe some perfect balance of successes to failures that you can show in a given film yeah. or maybe in a, with a given skier for a given year or for something sure. like that. Well, and that's where I say it's like you should have an 80% chance and you want like 20% chance. You have like 20% of your shots are like completely going too big or like eating it in some spectacular way, then you're probably doing good because you're also pushing it. Um, um, if right. you have zero crashes, you're probably not pushing it hard there's only there's one skier back in the day that his thing was he hadn't crashed for three years and every the his first segment you're like well obviously you're not pushing it. and then the first aries hits like a 70 footer and stomps it perfectly you're like oh no you're just really good <laughs> and uh but that only lasted like one more year and then he started crashing <laughs> <laughs> um do you learn from crashes mm. Yeah, but in more in the way that I learn more from failures than from successes. Uh-huh. Um, I think. I think. I guess that's, that's just, why I ask. Yeah, yeah, it's failure, but it's it's yeah. like the the margin for error is yeah. just so narrow that uh, I just wonder if there's actually learning that happens in there. You know. Yes and no, and I think it's just more like the the crashes that um, you end up happening that are kind of surprises or whatnot. Those are the crashes like where if you scope a line and you're trying to evaluate the snow from the bottom and you drop in and all of a sudden you start hauling and then all of a sudden the snow turns to hell and then you start tomahawking. Like those are the crashes where you learn more about you know, your mountain sense and your snow evaluations and whatnot. There's certain crashes where you're like, you do a backflip up a 40-foot cliff and you under-rotate and you're like, well, I got to spin harder. <laughs> it's just basic. But yeah. um, I think, I mean, yeah, I know on a larger scale, I've learned way more from failures than from successes. Yeah. Um, so in a certain way, yeah, crashes do make you learn. But hopefully with skiing is like you kind of learn on every line. You should. Every line is different, and you kind of should take something away every time. Ski films. Mm-hmm. Days of our youth, days of my youth. Yeah. Was an example of this new type, I think, of kind of or newer type, this evolution of adventure mm-hmm. films that's coming out now that's much more... You know, again, like self-aware or maybe more purposeful mm-hmm. um, has, you know, it's more conceptual. It's more narrative driven. Um, it's more about the personalities who are actually like participants in this. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on where, on how filmmaking has kind of evolved in the adventure sports world, in the ski world. Mm-hmm. I think it just in general, like people are starting to crave, they want stories and but not just like stories for story's sake. They want good stories. Um, and then I think it's also, they want to know the people behind that are doing this. When back in the day, when it was just what we call ski porn, where it's just like really gnarly skiing set to music. And that was, and segment, 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 movie over. And it was just pure entertainment. It was ski porn. And I think it started to evolve for two reasons. One, the progression of the sport was starting to slow down a little bit. There was this, uh, this, 
wave in the early 2000s, late 90s to early 2000s, where it was like every other day the sport was evolving before our very eyes. It was like one day someone was doing a 720, the next day a 900, the next day a 1080, and then bigger cliffs. And it was just such a rapid rise that so every year the films were just mind-blowing because it was new stuff. And then all of a sudden you started to see this kind of same things a little bit more often. Mm. And you started to see the same places. And I think it was all of a sudden being like, well, maybe it's time to tell some of the more human stories. Maybe it's time to tell some stories about the places they're going to. And I think it's just because, in my opinion, action sports as an entire whole have started to plateau a little bit. And so then in response, we to create entertaining pieces you start telling more and more stories i still think there's a huge room for ski porns and those kind of things but maybe just not on the yearly cycle like that we were seeing for such a long time yeah what kind of creative control or authority do you have over your segments in your films the films that you're a part of um depends from almost nothing to a little bit (laughs) like um it depends on who you're working with what film company you're working with um you know where you how long you've been in the game do you have the experience to kind of set up a trip or whatnot so sometimes it's as basic as like hey where do you want to go and you're like i've been looking at the zone and then we plan a trip around that to um you know I, i've yet to be able to choose the music in my segment so um, oh, really little of that um, yeah they don't consult you about that uh they sort of ever i mean the last few ones they kind of consulted but you're like you don't have much say. I mean, music licensing is really tough and it's really expensive. So sure. you don't have a ton of say. But um, yeah, I mean. Can you give them a genre or anything? Like, or a yeah. vi- just kind of a vibe? Yeah, and then they'll kind of help on that. But quite often, you know, I would, I would actually say every one of my segments with MSP, I've always been pretty happy with the music. So at least happy with it. Not necessarily I would have gone and sought out and picked, but um, definitely fine with it. Um, I mean, the most creative control you have is what you do, yeah. how you ski, what lines you choose in the mountain. So, um, and that's ultimately, I would say, what everyone only wants is, you know, just the creative control to ski the way they want to ski. Yeah. So that brings me to asking you about the 50 Project. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just talk a little bit about what that is, how you came up with the idea, mm-hmm. and what the broader concept and goal is. So yeah, the the 50 Project, um, it is based off this book by Chris Davenport, Penn Newhart, and Art Burroughs. Um, they're all from the Aspen region, and they created a book called The 50 Classic Climb, or 50 Classic Descents of North America. It was based off the book, The 50 Classic Climbs of North America. So it was kind of in that same vein. The 50 Classic Climbs came out in the late 70s, but there hadn't existed anything like that for skiing. So these guys created like a coffee table style book. Um, it was more just like a, it wasn't a guidebook. It wasn't, um, these are the best lines. It was just this kind of like almost dedication to the mountains and to beautiful aesthetic lines all over North America. Um, and I had actually saw the book when it first came out. It was about nine years ago and really didn't do much for me because my mind was kind of in a different state where I was more into helicopter skiing and, uh, you know, doing gnarly tricks and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of these lines are more of the kind of ski mountaineering, big couloirs and whatnot. And so I looked at it and I was like, all right, it's cool. A lot of beautiful pictures. And then picked it back up about four years ago. And I was like, man, there's, there's one line in there. I was like, I would love to ski that line one day. And so I put it on the bucket list. 
And then I'd like kind of flip through it here and there and I'd be like, all of a sudden two or three lines would pop in my head. I was like, okay, those are on the bucket list too. And then meanwhile, my ski career and film, normal film career is going on. And I started thinking about like, hey, maybe I could like take one of these off um, while I'm still filming. And I just never found the time, um, the place, the money, all the stuff to go get it done. Mm -hmm. And then I just started going further and further. I'm like, man, this book, all of a sudden those two bucket lists all of a sudden turned to 15. And yeah. I was like, let's just try and ski them all. And I was, I asked, and I like asked around, I was like, I don't think anyone's ever skied all of them. And although every single one has a, a one descent down it, no one skied them all. And then it was, just, it was about two years ago, I was like, started thinking about that. And then kept looking through the book and I do research and think, I'm like, is it doable? Like, am I capable as a skier to be able to do these, to ski all of these lines? And then I spent about a year kind of planning out logistics and trying to figure out how I could do this, putting out timelines and putting out budgets. And then I kind of, it was about last year when I was like, that's what I'm doing next year. Like I'm done with film skiing. I'm going to do that. And then at that point I was like, well, how are you going to get this that off the ground? You got to have like, how are you going to get this funded? And so I started thinking about like, Oh, do I do a movie and do this for a number of years and then come out with this documentary movie about it? And I was like, well, Movies aren't as popular these days. Um, it would be like a three-hour movie, and I would disappear for three years and maybe not even finish it. So I was like, as far as the business side of it, I'm like, I don't think that's really feasible. And then I started thinking about like media trends in general and just like what's going on. And, um, you know, social media, we're starting to see plateau, even decline. And I was like, well, what's the one that's doing well? It's like, well, YouTube's doing well and video's not going away and YouTube continues to dominate. Mm -hmm. It's like, I gotta do something there. I was like, well, what else is doing well? It's like, well, series, TV series are doing insanely well. We're, um, you know, I don't watch movies that much, but I will stream the hell out of a 13-hour <laughs> Netflix series, you know? Yeah. Like, everyone says they don't have time these days. You're like, yeah, because you're wearing, watching 13 hours of TV. <laughs> um, and then I was like, well, yeah, like, kind of the vlog-style format seems to be taking off. And I started thinking about that, and I was like, I think it's only because it's not the these vloggers are really interesting i think it's people are um, desiring a connection to reality like I, I look at instagram and i see so much of it is fake and cliche and i see a lot of other things of advertisements and just our life around us kind of being a little fake and i think that's where vlogs feel like they're doing well because it seems like it's a connection to something real yeah and that was like well instead of keeping this a secret and doing a movie about it three years later why don't i just come out and announce it and then create a series where you can follow me along while I attempt to do, I attempt to climb and ski all 50 lines in the book. And yeah, so that's kind of where it came to be. Um, I ended up pitching that to all my sponsors um, for year one. Uh, that Luckily, they were all super supportive and positive. One of the things I thought it could be was I thought it was going to be super cheap at first. I'm like, it's just like we just drive around and film these lines. And then I started thinking about like the editing, the licensing, the production, cameras, all that stuff. I was like, oh, man, this is actually going to be quite expensive. <laughs> so I did convince some sponsors to really help me out to make this a reality. And um, it took six to eight months to convince them. I probably have 150 pages of pitches, proposals, and budgets and just every little thing about it. Um and yeah, 
now we're actually live. I'm actually doing it. Um, episode one, where I announced that this is what I'm doing for the next three years, uh, came out on January 16th, and now I'm pretty committed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is one where you have that kind of creative control. I mean, yes. from conception all the way through. Yeah. So what what pieces of this are you going to handle, and what pieces of it are you uh, you know have you brought other people in to help with? Yeah, so um, I brought in a cinematographer, um, a full-time cinematographer who happens to be like one of the most accomplished ski mountaineers and ski mountaineer um, cinematographers in the world. And he's just a super friendly, happy dude. His name is Bjarne Salen. He's from Sweden, uh, moved to America a few years ago. And then I have an editing team where I have a few editors at a resource, but I'm mainly working with one guy. And my uh, essentially as soon as I'm done and wrapped with an episode, they get the footage and are trying to turn it around within a two week period. That's um, that's the idea, right? Yeah. It's like every two weeks or something. Every two weeks like? an episode comes okay. out. Okay. Um, they, it, I actually might end up speeding that up, but for right now it's like a two week window gives me enough time to not put pressure on trying to ski a line and still keep a consistent release schedule. Um, and then from there, like that's kind of, it. I hired someone to do the artwork, someone to do the intro design. Um, but for the most part, I've been in charge of all the planning, all the budgeting, um, all the hiring, all the um, kind of the creative control, and then where we're going throughout the winter. So um, every episode is kind of, as of right now, it's me coming up with an idea or a kind of story or the people or whatnot but i'm sure as like bjarne and i start to work more together there's gonna be more collaboration and um yeah i mean it's been a lot of work but it's it's fun to get it off the ground because i do think it's my my goal with it when i pitched this out was like i want it to be a proximity to reality like i want it to be as i want it to be real i want i don't want to gloss it over i don't want to do marketing turns i want to show the people what's going on um so that's kind of been my thought and what I'm going to hope to continue to push through this entire series. So do you get to pick the music for us? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. I do get to pick the music. Nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so how do you show people something new about each of these lines or, you know, uh, bring your own message to mm -hmm. each of these, to each of these lines, each of these events? Yeah, I think, well, a lot, one is I'm hoping to join up with like local locals the entire way so the local pros local legends local heroes whatever it is people that know these re regions um and they will give it their own story essentially um being that they can kind of tell a little bit about this um but at the same time like i do want to try and get some flavor in there like um you know there's this mountain in the la salles um it's right near to bear's ears and i'm planning to work and i've met with this guy as uh Len Nessifer, who's a Native American professor. Um, he's a professor of uh, Native American studies, but he's a skier and a climber, and he's an activist, and he works with, like, uh, he started this company called Native Outdoors um, that consults on, you know, when Patagonia does wants to do protections for bear's ears, he consults on that on the cultural aspect. So, like, when I go down there, I want to show, like, this region, this southern Utah, that region, and, like, bring kind of a different show the culture through Len, show like what makes this special. So I think quite often I'm going to be trying to do those kind of things and tell different stories. Some of them are going to be just like, this is a really hard line. I'm going to go ski it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's going to be the story. Yeah. Um, I could see some of the stories being very like, 
um, you know, I'm getting insanely tired and this is hard or this is dangerous. Um, but at the same time too, I like to keep things funny. So I'm always going to try and make sure there's some comedic element to it, whether that's, uh, um, whether that's kind of a storyline idea or just natural in the moment. So, so is, does this have anything to do with like a record? Like, is it, is it about like being the, the person to ski these 50 or like, I guess yeah, I yeah. ask because the, the first thing that I often think of when these, uh, types of expeditions or projects are announced is like, man, you really got to get creative these days because most of the firsts on the, on planet earth are really in whatever you're doing, like have been done for sure. Um, to me, no, it's nothing about being first because uh, I look back to when I was a ski racer and I remember being, when I was ski racing, the only thing you can do to show success is to win. You have to win. Yeah. And I, while I liked the act of ski racing, the competitive like winning element, I didn't, I wasn't that into. I remember specifically sitting after I won a race, had like one of the best races ever, and I was sitting in my room just like, I don't feel any better. I don't feel any like different. I This isn't doing anything for me. I was like, so skiing shouldn't be about winning. And so then as I moved more into free riding, I've always thought the same thing. It's like, one, when everyone's like first, 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 you're like, well, what's the next generation supposed to do? Mm-hmm. You're just saying our generation was the most badass. We yeah. did the first. You guys, yeah, you're all second and third. <laughs> and it's like, to me, like, yes, there is something special about going up or going down some big mountain first. There is a little added element of the unknown. But at the same time, if it's been done a hundred times and it's your first time, that's a first. That's your first time. It could be the first time that day it's been done. <laughs> and that's almost entirely different than the first time someone's ever done it. So I don't like to try and claim these things of first, of you're the greatest, all these things. Because to me, that was like not why I skied it's why I quit ski racing so I'm trying not to make about it when I pitched this to the sponsors I was like look I might not finish and I want this series to be as good and successful as if I do finish so my goal is to like let's make a really cool series and go on this really fun adventure that I'm going to learn a ton from push myself in ways I don't think were possible and come away with something that's really unique um, in terms of a media project, in terms of how much fun and adventure I'm going to have for myself. And if I end up being first, if I end up being 10th, it doesn't matter to me. Because if I can finish all these, that's going to be one of the greater accomplishments of my life, regardless if it happened first, second, third, 100th. It's like, to me, it's skiing is deeply personal. And when you make it about everyone else then you start to kind of degrade the sport do you feel like this is your masterpiece this is such a huge the scope of this project is so massive you know not that you again we were talking about like you don't need to top it like nobody needs to top it but yeah just in terms of the scope and what you've described wanting from each of these episodes is also you know a a whole project in and of itself yeah i mean from the outside it kind of looks like that it looks like a, ma- a masterpiece from the inside. I just look at it as like a, the newest thing for myself. And with skiing, I've been able to do so many different new things to me and so many different new challenges that to me, it's just kind of the next challenge in my life. Um, 
you know, when it came to like that pinnacle, when I skied the, the crack, like the 10 years of working up to that point, I look as like a masterpiece of like learning and, and experiencing and trying to evolve myself to know what I'm doing in the mountains and ski through them and travel through them in a, in a highly expert, efficient and, you know, rad way in certain ways. So I, uh, to me, like, yes, I think it is this cool kind of masterpiece project from the outside. But what I look at it was like this prior career that I had of being a professional skier and jumping off cliffs and doing backflips and skiing like super fast with heli and, you know, shooting out of helicopters and all that. I just felt like I was like, okay, that was, that was amazing. And I'm kind of done with that now though. Like I don't find this challenge in it, I still enjoy it, but it's not quite what it was back then. And now I look at this and I'm like, this is the challenge, the the thing that I want to do. Like, I look forward to the low moments as much as the high. I look forward to the individual decisions, the the learning process, the, the people I get to ski with that are outside of my normal scope of uh, ski partners and the places that I get to go that I don't normally go. So, um I think yes, it's it's a lot of work, um, and but to me, it's like it was the only thing I knew I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get it out of my head. So I was like, okay, you got to do that. Um, it, to me, it was like the crack. I thought about that for five years, yeah. And then <clears throat> when uh, when this kind of started to plague my brain over and over and over, I was like, well, now you got to do it. <laughs> You're not going to rest easy unless you try. Yeah. So so yeah. Oh, what do you hope the takeaway is for people who watch this? Again, just the scope of the project is so kind of grand. Mm-hmm. People who are following along and, and who come through it with you, you know, it's a journey. Like, what do you hope that they kind of understand better um, or are thinking about when they come out the other side? I think understanding a little bit how the sausage is made is definitely a goal, um, but not necessarily in the way that, like, here we're faking it, making a marketing turn, but, like, here's how we're making decisions to be safe in the mountains. And we could have gone in more in depth with that in episode two, but episode two, we went into that, like going out, staying slow, um, digging a pit, saying no, going back, waiting for things to stabilize. Um, I mean, if I really wanted to tell that story, it'd be like a two hour movie because of how much process it goes into it. But I want to give some introspection into what we do and how we make decisions. Um, And then kind of like see the reality of this. Like I I want to show people like one, how beautiful, inspiring and amazing the mountains are, but how challenging and how dangerous they can be. And, you know, it's uh, the mountains are where I love to be more than anywhere else. And they're pure heaven at times, but they can be pure hell at times. And I just want to like make sure that we like show that. Um, I want the people to walk away from it feeling like one, inspired but then too like i should learn more and become more experienced before i just go ski these things or whatnot so it's kind of twofold um that i'm hoping people want to ski more but i'm also hoping people that will do it in a way that moves them through the mountain safely uh well i don't want to keep you too much longer now you got all kinds of planning to do But I wanted to, to throw a couple kind of like fun or uh, yeah. more fun like rapid fire questions at you. Sounds good. You were a football player in high school, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. Were you 
Look, were you like starting quarterback in high school? Yes, I was. So was that ever? You said you you always wanted to be a skier, even when you were a kid. But like, was that ever a consideration to to make football a part of your plan? I don't know. Go go to like a. Yeah, I was because I grew up in a football family. My dad was a college player. Um, he like tried out for the the pros as well. Like he was quite a good football player, and then he. 35-year football coach. He's still a football coach to this day. So, oh, yeah. And he, he coached, like, <laughs> a couple NFL players. And, like, I had, like, family that went to the NFL. So I grew up around, like, football. I was, like, kind of groomed to be um, a quarterback from a young age. So Not Niners fans? Yeah, d- diehard Niners. I was 16 for Joe Montana. So, right, yeah. Uh, diehard Niners. And so... Um, so yeah, it was an option and I kind of had some stuff out there when I was going to like college, there was a potential for me to play. And uh, I remember actually I asked a coach how much time off I would have in the season. <laughs> That's the wrong question. Yeah, he's like, well, I was like, when is the window in between the winter? And he's like, well, he's like, if we don't go to a bowl game, you about, about six weeks off. We go to a bowl game, you have about four weeks off. And I was like, yeah, I'm out. Like I skiing is still my thing. Like it was, uh, it was always kind of uh, football felt like an option, and I loved it. But it was like not the option that skiing was to me. All right, your wife mm-hmm. Elise, 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 um, pro skier. Also, what's that like living with another pro skier? Couldn't imagine anything better. Really, uh-huh. um, we as pro skiers live very weird lives um have to sometimes at the drop of a hat pack up your stuff and go to another country um and at the same time then you might be over there and they'd be like yeah i know it's gonna be home on wednesday but the snow's really good i'm gonna <laughs> stick around here um so to have that understood mutual understanding of of each other is really really good and the other hard part is our jobs are look really really fun and they are really really fun so people like quite often will say, like, you don't work, you don't have a job. And you're like, no, I work my tail off to do this. But yes, it is really fun. But just because you equate work with misery and my work is fun doesn't mean I'm not working. It doesn't mean it's not a job. So I've noticed in couples and in friendships and, and stuff like that, when that, di- that dynamic is there and it's like I'm slaving away and you're just off gallivanting around the world and mm. having fun, it doesn't work out that well. Um I feel like the other person has to be quite a saint to get it, you know, to be that patient with that other person. So for Elise and I, we understand that and we do that. And we, we, I, if I'm like, I am going to be here another month. She's like, okay, well, I'm bummed, but yeah, it's part of the job. So, um, in that regards, it's awesome. Plus when I get home or we get to be together when we're not traveling separately we get to do the thing we love most together mm. skiing so yeah. it's pretty awesome any kind of rivalry husband wife rivalry uh um, sponsor comparison <laughs> yeah, social media uh following i don't think so but we are pretty competitive with each other but not in like a negative way at all i think it's just we push each other in a like really positive way of just like you know she's killing it doing stuff and she's like i just remember actually it was the year before the crack and she'd won all these awards and she'd done super well and she's like i feel like next year's this this is your year and i was like really okay she's like no it's your you're gonna do this <laughs> you're this, like this. i don't feel it coming yeah yeah on. And, and sure enough it was it was totally that year yeah. and so i think there's in a way of just like i think we just push each other in a positive way um as but 
we're not necessarily competitive with each other, if you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Product innovation. Mm -hmm. That seems to be, I don't know, like a side passion, side hobby of yours. Um, got the Arcade Belts Company. Yep. You, I saw on your feed lately, like you're, <laughs> you're hyping these like Schemos, the new Schemo socks or something. For sure. <laughs> so what's the, um, I guess, to, I guess talk about that. Is it, it, are you always thinking of like new ways to kind of innovate and make your. No, I think it's more if I'm something starting to bother me, mm -hmm. then I'm like, how do I fix this? This thing's annoying. I want to make it better. Yeah. I'm definitely never thinking of like trying to be like, what's the new product? Um, you know, with Arcade, it was actually my roommate and I, and he was the one that was like bringing up, he's like, have you tried this belt? This thing is super comfortable. And it was a fishing waiter belt. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I've been wearing this leather belt. It's too tight. It's too loose. I hate it. And like, I was like switching between these like Boy Scout style belts and they'd like fall apart. And then, and that we kind of modified that fishing waiter belt and then started making the Arcade belt for the first time. Um, so I think it was more just like we were annoyed by something and then we're like, we should fix that. Um, and then there's a lot of other things, you know, with like ski design, um, the, the shift binding was pretty, I mean, I didn't do any of the engineering on it, but myself and this other skier, Chris Rubens, were like, we're challenged like, well, what's the next big product? And Solomon asked us and we told him, well, the Holy Grail is if you can make a binding that tours like a pin binding on the way up and then... Uh, skis like an alpine binding on the way down yeah and they're like they literally took that and a year later came with the first prototype of 3d mold and we're like whoa i didn't know you guys were gonna do anything in the front of that and then six years of testing and back and forth and trying to work with it to get what we did today and then yeah the schemo sock i think the i think it was just more like i just when you're ski touring your feet quite often hurt and you get blisters and you're in the skin track for hours upon hours and i just remember being like there's got to be a sock that like fixes my heel from like lifting up this whole time. And like, there's got to be a sock that fits better and breathes better. And I just started thinking, I was like, I'm so annoyed by my feet. <laughs> and I was like, there's maybe a sock could help. And then that company actually randomly called me and they're like, we want to put you on the team. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll be on the team if you do one thing. <laughs> I was like, if you make this sock, then I'll do it. And they did it. And it's awesome. It's like the best, the I mean, it truly does work. I'm, like, so fired up by it. I'm, like, yes. Like, I have, like, 50 of them just trying to give out to all my friends because I'm, like, try it. It works. It's better. So, so yeah, I just, I don't know. I just get annoyed by stuff, and then I want to fix it. Um, one resort, if you have, if you only get to ski one resort for the rest of your life, what's the, what's the one spot? I mean, still probably have to be Squaw. Squaw. I mean, it's just, like, it's such a playground. There's so many different, it's, it's so fun. Like, I, I, I've gone to so many ski areas around the world. And, like, Jackson Hole, that place is awesome. Whistler is awesome. Like, so many great mountains. And I get home, and I'm like, oh, my God, this mountain is so fun. Like, there's so many cliffs and hits and, like, just weird lines and features and every a bowl that faces every which direction so you can always find some sort of decent snow. It's just, like, it's just a fun mountain. It's a full playground. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Cody. Ah, thank you. Thanks for thank the time, you. man. It was great. Yeah, I really appreciate it. That was fun. Thanks again to Cody for taking the time to come on the podcast. If you want to keep up on what he's up to and keep up with the 50 Project, follow him on Instagram at Cody Townsend. 
If you want to follow what I'm up to with California travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating and a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals and comes courtesy of the YouTube Music Library. See you next time. 